Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Lynn Hilton, it's great to be back with you for another episode in our series of the best exercises for. And today we thought we'd delve right into chest voice. So before we get on to that, what is a vocal register and how many do we actually have? Oh, that question. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for putting me on the spot. (laughs) There is a lot of uh, disagreement and contention when it comes to talking about vocal registers. So ultimately, over the past, what, 150-odd years of science and research, we still haven't come to an agreement on what is a vocal register, does it exist, what are the parameters, and what do we call them? So that's my caveat there. For me, my observation has been that there are several places where a voice shifts, and a register really is just an area of your range. And people label them all sorts of things. Um, so me, I tend to go now for lower register, middle register, upper register, or high, low, middle, high, you know, that sort of idea, as opposed to giving it a particular label. But we're talking about chest register today because this is how many people describe it, or chest voice is another term. Now, I there's definitely a lower register and a another register. There's a physiological shift that happens. That's the other thing is that registers can um, be looked at from a physiological point of view, a perceptual point of view, an acoustical point of view. So it depends a little bit on which one you're looking at. So you might say if it's just physiological, then there's just two registers. Is that bottom one and then that upper one and you've got this one transition but as we go higher there are some other shifts that seem to happen but these seem to be much more on an acoustical level so making changes to the acoustics is much more useful there whereas in the first shift it's more useful to make a physiological change so i don't know if, i don't think i'll probably answer that question i don't want to be um cornered <laughs> Uh, I can talk about some of the registered terms that are out there, if that helps. Yeah. People often talk about the very first register being fry or pulse, which is that uh, sort of sound. I can't even do it these days, but uh, it's, can you do the creaky sound? Uh, There it is. So since menopause, my my fry is gone, which is kind of interesting. I can do it when I suck in air, but not so much when I go forward. That's fry, also known as pulse, and I think M0 is another term that people use. Then the next register is the one which is more in the range of where we speak, assuming that we don't have any issues with speaking. So this is often called, as we're talking about, the chest register, chest voice, M1, um, modal, speech, uh, thick folds. So that can be another term. Then the next register, uh, head voice, head register, loft, M2, thin folds. And then another register would be falsetto, which sometimes male head voice is called falsetto as well, just to confuse us. Mm-hmm. And then, But this other falsetto, which is the one I'm referring to, is that whistle tone, you know, where 
like the Cariah, uh, Mariah Carey. Cariah, Cariah Mary. <laughs> and then the other rich, the last one is Whistletone or Falsetto, M3, Flagellate. So they're the registers that I'm aware of. Some people also talk about middle register, mix, belt. There's there that too. Some people talk about that as a register. Other people say it's a quality. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm probably making those people who are trying to get a definitive answer quite frustrated because there is none. <laughs> and I'm not going to be the one who goes around saying this is the way you have to label them. I think singing teachers just need to be aware there's a whole bunch of stuff out there. Nobody's got all the answers and um, you have to figure out really what works for you. And I, I used to use the term chest register or voice because a lot of singers recognize, you know, recognize what that means in terms of a sensory thing. So is that because it, it we can feel it vibrating in the chest? That's where it gets its name from. Uh, uh, I can feel that vibration. But if I go, woo, woo, then I don't feel a vibration in there. Mm chest area so i think it's come from that and that's definitely how it was described to me when i first learned about registers why is it important for us and singers to establish a chest voice well first of all the caveat to this is not all singers need to so if you work in the classical world in fact it's discouraged and removed so that wouldn't be appropriate um, if you're in the pop world, you might choose to sing in a vocal quality or style that doesn't incorporate uh, any of that resonance at all. And that's your prerogative as an artist, you know, because stylistically you can choose how you want your sound to be. Having said that, if we want a balanced voice that we're in control of and to have a variety of different colours and tones available to us, and if you want to belt, then you will need to access this part of your voice. What are the qualities of chest voice then? And, and what's really happening in the system to be able to create it? Yeah, so there's quite a lot of things going on. First of all, if we think about muscle engagement, so we've got the thoroughritinoid muscle, which runs all the way along the vocal folds, and they've got the CT or the crocothoroid muscles, which sit on the outside of the um, the larynx, but attached to the thorough cartilage and cricoid cartilage to help um, when they contract, that basically helps the vocal folds lengthen and thin out to, so we can get up to the next part of our voice. So when we're in chest voice, the TA is engaged. So if I'm singing down here, uh, my TA is engaged. I could disengage it, see if I can. Uh, so I'm not really, I've got the pitch, but I'm not really engaging TA. So this means that I've got more mass coming together. So if we think about the vocal folds on the vertical, they could be uh, coming together from the bottom to the top when they eventually do come together or, you know, the whole mass during the glottal cycle. Or it could be just the top is coming together with no TA engagement. So as soon as we engage that muscle, ah, 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 or mm, 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 when I do that, I'm engaging TA, then much larger mass of the vocal fold can come together. And so we get a, a bigger tone or a louder, uh, stronger tone. Um, so we've got TA engagement. And we also, um, during the glottal cycle, so the vocal folds uh, go from top to bottom in, the, in their cycle. And if you're, uh, and they come together on the vertical, on the horizontal as well. So we've got vertical and horizontal connection. 
So the amount of times they come together will determine our pitch. So if we're, my vocal folds are coming together 440 times a second. And in that, so one of those um, moments is called a glottal cycle. Now, in the glottal cycle, our vocal folds move open from the bottom through the middle up to the top and then close again at the bottom as the top opens. And that's one glottal cycle. And there is this little moment where the vocal folds are actually connected on the vertical 100% or most of 100%. And the amount of time that they're in that position, which is called the close quotient, and that's measured in percentage, will also determine how strong the sound is. So if I'm only coming together like um, 30%, like if my quotient is only about 30%, then I have a very breathy tone. Mm. If it's more interesting enough, it's more like sort of 60 to 70 is a stronger uh, sound, and that would sound chestier. So we get the ah, uh, that, I mean, I don't know what that would be, maybe 50%, or it could be ah, uh, ah. Uh, where the vocal folds are not staying together at that closed quotient for a very long time. So we've got TA engagement and closed quotient and the mass are all contributing to the chest resonance. And we have a great episode of the podcast. It's episode 44 with Chris Johnson talking about vocal registers. And he describes how when we have all those components that you've just mentioned there, we're going to get the qualities of non-breathy. It's a buzzy sound and it's going to get louder as we increase in pitch. Ideally, what is the larynx doing in terms of movement? Are we going to have a, a high larynx, a low larynx? Does it matter, larynx? <laughs> What's the state of it? Well, you don't want to have a larynx that's too low because if I go too low, so if I drop my larynx as I descend, <laughs> now my vocal folds can't come together. If I keep my larynx in a more neutral position, now my vocal folds are in the right position for closure. So that's one thing I would say about the larynx. As we go higher, the larynx may want to track up as we go into the higher notes. Um, and that's okay as long as it's not impeding the pitch or the quality or the dynamics. Mm. So, I mean, some people talk about maintaining a totally neutral larynx all the way. When I did my study where I looked at female vocalists from classical and non-classical backgrounds singing through from D4 up to D5 on a major scale on the, on the sound R, one of the things that I noticed was that as they got closer into the transition point, which was in the area of A flat, the larynx actually came up. Yeah. So I wonder if maybe, because it happened um, in both classical and non-classical singers, I wondered if maybe that is a part of the process, that actually it does need to come up. But if it comes up too far, now that interferes uh, with, once again, with vocal closure, and we start to get people um, engaging wrong muscles or pushing more air, the, eventually, you know, they'll crack, the voice might crack. Uh, or they might go into flip into falsetto. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely a point at which if the larynx comes up, there's a point at which it might be too high. Mm. What vocal range are we actually covering then in a chest voice, in cisgendered voices? I work around the 
guidelines of anything from G4 down for females is chest and for males anything from D4 down is chest. Once you get into higher notes, we're getting into transition. This is where we need to start making some shifts. When we're talking about belts, because as you mentioned in the beginning, we need this foundation to assist us with that quality slash register, however you want to look at it. Where can chest be taken up to generally for a belt? I think that depends on the physiology of the singer. Mm -hmm. Because I've heard people belting up to um, F5. Of course, if they go beyond that, it might all fall apart. But you know, it's built. They've built that into their voice, and they've done it so much that it's comfortable. Mm. And then there are other people who start doing that belt, you know, around A4, and the voice falls apart. So mm. you know, if the larynx is too high, so it's. Um, I think it really depends on the physiology. Maybe also a little bit on um, development. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, it's a lot harder than after you've been practicing it for a while. I definitely felt that my voice could tolerate belt when I, my, I was vocally fit much better than when I wasn't. Like now, if I go into belt, that would set me probably off coughing or, you know, vocal fatigue quite easily because mm. I'm not practicing as much, you know, in terms of technique anymore. Mm. I guess it also depends on whether what we're hearing actually is the belt or whether we've got a perceptive thing or an acoustic thing so it might sound like somebody is taking chest really high but in fact they're not yeah that's really common isn't it so quite often when i i'll demonstrate something like someone might say to me oh you're you know you're bringing your chest up really high to that d5 no i'm not i'm going into a combination of utilizing ta and ct which is sort of can sometimes be termed as mix. Um, Ingo Tietze talks about mix being when you're using both CT and TA in a sort of percentage game. But I'm also using that ah sound, you know, mm. acoustic point of view to help. Um, and and the N, you know, is helping with back pressure on the vocal folds so that they're not having to. Um, well, I'm not pushing more air than I. If I didn't have the N, I might want to force it a bit more Mm -hmm. so i've used different strategies to help me get that sound but i'm not in chest voice Mm. Mm. sound and if 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 someone's never experienced that before they might think that they're bringing their chest voice up high but actually all they're doing is learning how to make that transition Mm. who's going to potentially have a harder time accessing chest voice well, if you've never engaged your TA when you're singing, and especially if you don't engage your TA when you're talking, mm. so if you speak like this all the time, you'll struggle because that TA is not very well developed. And that might even end up causing some problems if you do it too much. So as a teacher, you have to be really careful, you know, that you're managing, monitoring and guiding the singer and giving them uh, parameters, you know, in terms of how long they practice for or um, which kind of exercises they do and how they warm up and all that sort of thing. Uh, so they're probably the people who will have the most problem, assuming that, you know, your pathology is, or oh, we don't have any pathology. Mm. Yeah. Is there anyone else that you can think of? I think personality can sometimes come into it as well. If somebody is quite shy, perhaps, um, isn't maybe used to making a big, bigger, louder sound, uh, they they might find it somewhat intense. Mm. Uh, we have a great blog because I wrote it. 
um, on our website about helping a shy personality experience this register a little bit more. Um, age as well, in terms of we can't expect a younger singer to be able to make a as big a sound as an adult voice. And, and also at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, the elderly voice or the aged voice, you know, like for me, I can't get the sort of sound that I used to get anymore. My vocal folds um, just don't <laughs> want to do it anymore. So, um, you know, if you, if, so the collagen and elastin start to deteriorate or dissipate as you get older. And if you don't have a lot of that, then your sound isn't going to be as big. So that could be a problem on that side as well. Also style, you mentioned at the, the beginning, if you are a classical singer, you might be using a more CT based approach. But if we want to get into something that like belt, it, it might just be a new thing. So it, it, it not necessarily going to be a struggle, but it, it might be new. Well, it'll also be, you know, you need to then make it into a habit. Mm -hmm. That takes time. Mm. So in opposition, who tends to have an easier time accessing chest? Well, I think those who grow up with that style, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about, say, for instance, gospel singers, you know, they, I don't think, it's very rare that you find someone who comes from a gospel background who hasn't accessed that side of their mm. Same with rock. Um, so definitely certain genres will, if you've come up through that genre, whether it's self-taught or through training, you probably won't have any difficulty. Men tend to have less difficulty with it than women. In, in fact, it's very rare that I find a man who is CT dominant. Mm. Um, we were talking about earlier about the, you know, when we're thinking about it from cisgender point of view, definitely someone who's transitioning. So actually that's another thing too, is that if we've got female to male, even though hormonally they're getting what's needed to make adjustments into uh, the, the um, thicker vocal fold, it still takes time to adjust to having a thicker vocal fold. And mm -hmm. I've talked to a couple of uh, trans men who it took maybe two years for them to go from their female voice into their male voice to being really comfortable and it being habit because it was like, you know, a totally new instrument, really, that they had to navigate. So that's mm -hmm. just technically, let alone repertoire-wise, but um, that might be also um, problematic. Then if if someone's uh, trans-female, they may not want to, you know, going on what you were talking about earlier about sort of the psychological side, you know, they mm. engage that sound because it reminds them too much of, you know, a voice that they don't want to have. Mm. Also, personality-wise for this category as well if somebody is a, a louder personality mm -hmm. uh, that can be a, an advantage it can also be a disadvantage down the road uh, health-wise those who are more gregarious and outgoing and you know ex extrovert tend to overuse their voice tend to over engage ta and so mm -hmm. get vocal fatigue or vocal soldier issues mm. as a result of their personality Let's get into some scenarios then and, and see what the best exercises we can create for the situation. So imagine a singer is working to find a more functional, foundational chest voice. What would we need to consider in terms of creating the best vocal exercise for them? Yeah, so I think the first thing I always want to establish is do they have control and stability over the larynx and the vocal folds? 
Um, so I often start there. Um, there's a really cool exercise, which is like the karate chop up, which helps people engage the vocal folds vertically in the full closed position. Mm. So they get an experience of what it's like to bring the vocal folds together completely mm -hmm. and engage and then turn it into a pitch. So I might do something like, ah, 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 you know, so they start with the closure and then go into the pitch. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I might add that into a scale. And I do that just in the area sort of that below the transition. I don't go into the transition initially mm -hmm. because quite, you know, that's a whole other set of um, coordinations and I don't want to confuse the situation. Yeah. I also look for sounds that are close to speech and I might even use counting. So I might do something like one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one, and get them not to sustain, but just to hit that pitch and uh, move on to the next one. Or I might use um, gut, 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 or but, but, but. I'll also think about the vowel and consonant combination. I'll look for a consonant that has less airflow, b, m, m, and I'll also look for a vowel that has more of a probably a chestier resonance, so an a ah or ah or eh, so that I'm counteracting the CT dominance and also bringing in acoustically uh, some performance tunings that are more towards that chestier resonance. Mm -hmm. So those are the things. And then I'll just do lots of different combinations and I'll do five notes, I might do single notes, I might do um, triads, um, maybe some arpeggios. It just depends on how well they're um, accommodating it. So I tend to use the less broader scale distances. Um, and that's, I'll just play around with that. And I might also get them to sing the lyric of a song, but more in a spoken way. Mm -hmm. They start to get used to creating pitch with that more speech-like approach. And in, and because sometimes people just go into their inverted commas singing voice. Mm. So I try to help them make a disconnect from that and say, well, we're not singing, we're just creating sound at pitch. Mm. And then after a while, when they start to get used to that coordination, then I'll start to incorporate sustained sounds. Mm. Yeah, so that, that's probably how I would start. Mm. There's also fry onsets, which can get the chords together quite nicely. And Kerry Obert, we have a, a great episode um, of the podcast number 59, talking about the tongue. And Kerry's also spoken before about how we can utilize the tongue in a retracted sense to actually help thicken up the vocal folds and establish that chest voice that way. You also have a, a prop that you like to use, which is a TheraBand. Can you talk to us about that? Oh, yes. Um, it's been a while since I've done TheraBand. You know, it has to be set up correctly because it's very easy to do this incorrectly and cause strain and problems elsewhere. So you can use a TheraBand as a way of helping the interretinoids, which are the little muscles at the back of the vocal folds, mm -hmm. to stay closed. Mm. And this happens in a sort of synergistic way. Um, through the other muscle engagements. Basically, as the singer uh, sings through the sound, they'll stretch out the theraband. You actually need to make sure that the arms are, are parallel to the floor, that they're tucked in at the 
uh, the elbows are tucked in at the sides and that the shoulder blades are also coming together as you do the stretch. And it's not a huge stretch. It's not about strength here. It's just about engagement. So that can really help. Um, if you don't do that, then the prayer position, so you put your palms together sort of at the level of the sternum and you press in at the palms. You could also press against a wall, so as if you're trying to push the wall away, but you don't want to bend the elbows. You want to make most of the um, push come from the arms rather than the shoulders. Uh, and the other one is sitting in a chair, um, like it needs to be a nice, you know, sort of like a dining room chair. And as you're singing, you're pull, you put your hands under your seat and you try to lift your seat up underneath you. So these come from speech and language therapy. Just on the TheraBand, is there a particular colour that we would need to use? Because they're all different weights, aren't they? Yeah, um, well, I think it depends on the student. If it's a male, fairly strong male, I'd go with one of the um, stronger ones. And each brand has different colour codes, I think. Ah, uh, right. Yes. Is it, so in TheraBand, yellow is the weakest and green and red are sort of middle and then black, I think, is the strongest. Mm -hmm. so, I usually use the green. I think I've probably run out of the green for whatever reason. So mm. if it's not a therapy, so you can either do it as a single or you can double it up to make it mm -hmm. stronger. The fact is it doesn't have to be, like I said, it's it's not about getting it stretched. It's just about a little bit of help, mm -hmm. a little bit of engagement. It's not about trying, oh, you know, doing that mm -hmm. because now you're going to set yourself up for other problems. Mm. What repertoire works quite well for developing this area? Well, probably not classical <laughs> or folk, English folk in particular. Mm. Pop, it depends. I mean, if the singer tends to follow the style of the singer and it's someone like Billie Eilish, that's not going to work. Mm. But if you think about Adele, you know, she definitely engages TA, mm. as does um, Jessie J. Um, all the men, pretty much all the pop men do. Uh, maybe not soul R&B because there's a lot of falsetto in that. Mm. So rock songs um, or rockier pop songs, so Elton John, Billy Joel, yeah, that sort of thing, Ed Sheeran, if we're looking at the more contemporary, not Sam Smith, and then gospel. Mm -hmm. Jazz is a difficult one because, <laughs> mm. once again, it depends on who you follow. But if you're listening to someone like Sarah Vaughan, well, actually, no, Sarah Vaughan, when she goes higher, goes much more into her head voice. Uh, definitely um, Ella Fitzgerald, pretty balanced. Uh, Diane Reeves, Sandra Wilson, these are the females. Um, men, people like Mark Murphy, uh, Kurt Elling, they all engage their TA very nicely. Mm. Um, yeah, so you have to, it's not necessarily genre, uh, it'll be stylistic more because mm. like if you look at pop there's so many different vocal styles in it isn't it mm -hmm. and so I, I usually try and match it the closest to that person's voice so they can yeah. kind of relate and i also ask them who do they listen to and then i might select you know a couple of people that i'd say oh yes have a listen to them and they're engaging their to well so we've spoken about engaging a bit more chest with shorter scale patterns things like the theraband fry on sets the spoken voice maybe being staccato before moving into legato lines it's not always that simple in terms of 
we're just establishing chess and there's nothing else going on. So what if we're noticing that a chess voice is actually quite pressed and it's a bit too heavy to be a functional chess voice? What can we be doing there? Mm. So here I use um, a couple of strategies. One is to, instead of going ascending, I'll actually descend. So, and I might just do that. So a descending arpeggio would really work well there and going above the transition point. So for women starting maybe around D5, men around G4, somehow it causes the person to release that press when they do it. I think, I don't know if it's a psychological thing um, or combination, psychological, physiological. So that's one of the things I do. The other thing is I look for, in this case, I'd now look for a consonant that has more airflow. Mm. So I might use a W or a F. Mm. Um, I would probably still use a vowel that has a chestier resonance, so an R or E or A, but I'd just give them a fricative. I have actually, and this I got from another teacher, sometimes used a far. Um, and and got the the singer to really yell it. Fa 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 fa, which sounds really ridiculous, <laughs> but uh, at the F, the fricativeness of the F, for the airflow releases somehow releases that that pressed sound on the vocal folds, and so they get used to making a big sound, but without the extra press or the excessive vocal fold closure. Other things that we might want to consider are the maladaptations. Is there something in the way of that register working as it should because something else is trying to take the job or something else is the crutch? So, for example, the tongue. If the tongue is a bit backed up and tense, yeah, it can be helpful to find chest, but it also could be getting in the way. Yeah. Um, and we had a, a, a very recent episode with Chris Johnson talking about the jaw and how that can maladapt to other parts of the system too. So what might we be looking out for in terms of things getting in the way of the chords coming together as efficiently as they could do or trying to take the job on for itself? Hmm. Well, I guess the most obvious is any tension anywhere. So mm. you're looking out for tension as, as you were saying um, in the jaw around the throat area, in the shoulders, because that's a pretty quick indicator if someone's over-muscling. Mm. Then listening out as well for indicators that intrinsic muscles are being over-engaged, and that would be um, like the press sound you were talking about, or if someone's got really extreme vocal fold closure and they sound like they're yelling, mm. uh, or the pitch is going flat, or the voice is cracking, or they're getting vocal fatigue. Um, those those sort of things. Also, if someone doesn't have any control over dynamics, so they can't do whatever they're doing quietly or loudly, um, they don't have the option, it's always loud, um, then that's an indicator that there's too mus much muscle engagement. And then, of course, we're also watching out for the larynx because, you know, singing is it's a complex um, process of lots of different things coordinating at the same time to mm. Create a pitch and a sound. So the larynx may be coming up, and then the singer is struggling to get the pitch out, and so they push more air. And now we've got this big sort of uh, vicious cycle going on. When they push more air, now the vocal folds can't stay together, and we lose um, pitch and quality of sound. The voice might crack. 
but there's some quite strong indicators if that's happening. You know, if the sound is yelly and going flat, and if they look like they're straining, then they're pretty good indicators that you need to do something to reverse that or to mm. mitigate that. And there's all sorts of different strategies. Now, sometimes people will do that for so long that the muscles stay contracted and now they get what's called muscle tension dysphonia. Mm. That now needs to be dealt with um, physically, so they need to have that released through laryngeal massage or something similar before you know you continue on because unfortunately sometimes the muscles get to a stage where they're so contracted for so long it's now a chronic condition and mm. uncontract and so you need to manually release it. Mm. So there is that possibility as well. I mean, if it's only minor, you could do self manual um, therapy, you know, self-massage. I'm sure that on our podcast we've interviewed a couple of people who already do that. Um, who would they be? We've spoken with Lydia Flock from the Voice Care Centre and she also has her own practice in Oxford, I believe, about the experience of laryngeal massage, whether it should hurt, that sort of um, thing. Also, we've got a podcast with Walt Fritz talking about that similar uh, idea and also a clip on our YouTube channel uh, about how we can yes. do that and in the membership we have several videos from people um demonstrating how mm. you do self-massage now as a singing teacher you'd never do it on someone else if you haven't mm. got the training but there's no reason why the student can't go and watch those videos and do it for themselves are there signs in the chest range that there might be pathology inflammation injury or do we look more towards the top end of our range for that Oh, no, you can hear it in the bottom. Uh, if it's, you know, if the vocal folds are very swollen, quite often it makes them difficult to come together to mm. adduct and to function. So you might find that the sound is very, it's not just breathy, there's like a hoarseness to it or a roughness. Maybe pitching is a problem as well uh, because the vocal folds aren't vibrating at an accurate speed. So you might find that even in the lower part of the range, the voice is going um, out of pitch, which is unusual for the singer. So that would be an indicator. And when they're speaking, you know, people often talk about, oh, my voice feels really tired or it's hoarse or I'm losing my voice after I've been speaking for a while. So that definitely will be shown in the lower part of our range as well. Mm. What repertoire would work well for singers who are struggling to ease off chest then? Well, I guess anything that's different to what they're used to. It might be repertoire that starts higher and comes down lower. Mm. Uh, quite often people who are TA dominant uh, get into that habit. So every time they start down in that lower end, they habitually bring up that tension as they go higher. So finding a song which actually starts higher and comes down, that might help. Changing the key so that it's above the transition instead of below or um, just in the middle and also incorporating some of the sounds that are working well to find that release into the melody so not going straight into singing the, the lyrics but actually using sounds that are working nicely in the um, exercises that find release and you could apply that into the melody and then find also sounds like for instance say they're doing really well on sounds or worse sounds or 
mm-hmm. sounds, you might actually add those in front of each word mm-hmm. so that they start off with that more airflow and see if they can find the release. Um, so you, a lot of it is about changing habits and disengaging the muscle from a habitual point of view. Great. Well, thank you, Lynn. Hopefully that's given listeners a good chunk of information to take away and apply in their studios. And I look forward to seeing you on the next one where we're going to cover head voice. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.